Meet Reed Lance Rosenthal, rancher, number one best-selling, award-winning author, and unabashedly, unapologetically on the right side of the outstanding issues of our generation. But don't try to fence him in. Sometimes his positions will surprise you because Reed is definitely his own man with his own opinions. You might love him, you might hate him, but you won't be able to stop listening. Step over to the right side with Reed. Howdy, listeners from coast to coast. The Gulf to Canada and around the globe. This is Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side Radio. And we're in June. Holy moly. Here we go. So today, as promised, I'm going to bring you the history of recessions in the United States of America and the rest of the story. Because the rest of the story is a really big story in this overall context and presentation. And if I have time, I'm going to give you a few more tidbits on the Silk Road initiative by China. Remember, we went over the history of that last week. It's going to have incredible consequences to the planet, to China versus the U.S. and vice versa, and to the economies of the world. It's also a lesson in point to the United States on how not to conduct foreign policy. And then we're going to have a big rat-a-tat-tat with all sorts of things in it, many of them which circle right back to the historical story on the history of recessions and the rest of the story. So let's get started. How about our founder's quote? Alexander Hamilton again. A nation which can prefer disgrace to danger is prepared for a master and deserves one, unquote. Well, you know, it reminds me kind of of a meme, that quote. I saw it a few weeks ago, and there's a picture of one guy, kind of an American flag, his hands in his pockets, obviously dejected, and it says, I'm just one American. What can I do? And then the meme below it is this huge crowd, unbelievable, and it says, There's a hundred million people thinking just like you. Think about that collective power, which kind of brings us to the ranch story. So we lost a heifer a few days back, and she's kind of a wanderer, in fact, a rogue. And we went all over the place looking for her. No luck. No luck whatsoever. So we called all the neighbors, and during the course of their day out on their places, they kept their eyes peeled. And sure enough, between the collective of the five or six neighbors, even though miles away, we found her. So see the strength in numbers, folks. There's nothing a hundred million Americans can't do or refuse to do. Which brings us to our historical story. So there's been as many as 48 recessions in the United States, going all the way back to the Articles of Confederation, which preceded the Constitution. And they've been caused by many of the same things, and they've created cycles in the country's agricultural production, industrial production, consumption, business investment, and banking industry. And of course, now, if China sneezes or America sneezes, the whole world catches cold. It's one of the reasons you see this decoupling of the bigger economies from one another, never mind their adversarial positions on a whole host of topics, from Ukraine to sanctions to the use of the dollar as a weapon. I mean, I can go down the list. We've gone over it in other shows. But major modern economic statistics, unemployment, GDP, they were not even compiled on a regular or standardized basis until after World War II, believe it or not. The average duration of the 11 recessions between 1945 and 2001 is about 10 months. It was about 18 months for recessions between 1919 and 1945, and about 22 months for recessions from 1854 to 1919. So starting in 1835, this measurement of what is a recession 
It's really an index of business activity by the Cleveland Trust Company, and it provides comparisons for data between recessions. Beginning in 1854, right before the Civil War, the National Bureau of Economic Research dates recessions, peaks, and troughs to the very month, in fact, almost to the day. And as I go through these various recessions, I'm going to hit the major ones. We don't have time to go through all 48. I'm going to point out to you, and you will see the similarities back there in history, even 200 years ago, to the plight which we face today in all sorts of areas. And I'll call out little reminders, but be thinking about this as I talk. You know, wars, i.e. Ukraine, monetary policy, i.e. what the Fed's doing today, gold-backed currency, i.e. what we went away from beginning in 1971, and I can go on. But you will see that history will paint a lesson as to where we are right now. And why am I bringing this to you? Well, listen to my historical stories on money, banks, the Federal Reserve, on the rightsideradio.com, because this is all a big psyops, folks. And listen to my five historical shows on psyops. They want you to believe one thing, and they are lying to your face. You know, never mind COVID, and COVID jabs, and lockdowns, you know, and two weeks to stop the spread, and all that kind of stuff. Never mind, we won't touch your gas stoves. Never mind, we didn't blow up the Nord Stream pipeline. Listen, I can go on and on. You know the long litany of blatant mistruths which are fed to us, or truth which is withheld from us. You know, the Russian dossier, Trump-Russia collusion, the FBI is uh, golden, blah, blah, blah. They're doing the same thing on economics. They're giving you all sorts of stats. They're giving you all sorts of platitudes. They're giving you all sorts of catchy phrases to make you think everything's okay. Well, at the end of this presentation, you'll be able to put together just how things really are. And next week, I'm going to tell you where we are in the five-stage recession, inflation, deflation cycle. So the very first recession in the United States was the Panic of 1785. It lasted to 1788. It ended the business boom that followed the American Revolution. There was post-war deflation, competition in the manufacturing sector from Britain, you want to say China today, and a lack of adequate credit and a sound currency. Hmm, that kind of sounds like today. And by the way, it created a panic amongst business and the groups that held properties back then, and they demanded a stronger federal government. Wow, could that possibly play into the goals of the mongrels in power right now? Hmm, who could possibly answer that question? And then the copper panic of 1789, a loss of confidence in copper coins. Oh, this sounds familiar too. Due to debasement and counterfeiting, it kind of led to a commercial freeze-up. It halted the economy, and it wasn't alleviated until the introduction of new paper money to restore confidence. Hmm, you mean like digital currencies that are being threatened? The Panic of 1796 to 1797. This was caused by a land speculation bubble that burst. Deflation from the Bank of England, which by the way was just about insolvent from their involvement in the French Revolutionary Wars, and a host of related factors. And then there was the Depression of 1807. This was brought on by what was called the Embargo Act of 1807, which was passed by the United States Congress under Thomas Jefferson. It was an embargo against British goods, and they counteracted with an embargo against American goods. Let's see, is this like sanctions, Russia, China? Oh, 
Wow. That recession was not broken. That close to depression was not broken until Macon's Bill Number no. 2 ended the embargoes in May of 1810. Then there was the 1812 recession. Very brief recession, and then voila, we had the War of 1812. And the recession was magically over, and the United States was rocking and rolling. And then we had the Depression more than a recession, of 1815 to 1821. So after the War of 1812 ended, which was in 1815, the United States kind of entered a period of financial panic because banknotes were depreciating following the inflation that was created by the war. Wow, this sounds kind of familiar too. The 1815 panic was followed by several years of mild depression and then a major financial crisis called the Panic of 1819, widespread foreclosures, bank failures, unemployment, a collapse in real estate prices, and a slump in agricultural and manufacturing sectors. Wow. No, I'm not talking about today. I'm talking about back in the early 1800s. And then, not having learned their lesson, England and America kind of went into a trade war again in 1828. And when trade finally declined to the point that both economies were suffering, well, you know, they managed to right the wrong, so to speak. And then there was a major recession from 1836 to 1838. It was caused by bank failures, a lack of confidence in the paper currency. Remember, they replaced the copper currency with a paper currency. Tightening of English credit, crop failures. And right around this time, all the speculative markets that had been roaring up to that time, they were stopped dead in their tracks when American banks stopped issuing payments in gold and silver coinage. 600 banks, by the way, failed in this period. And the cotton market in the South totally collapsed. In late 1839 to late 1843, four years, long one, this was kind of one of the longest and deepest depressions, recessions of the 19th century. It was a period of pronounced deflation, massive default on debt. And this Cleveland Trust Company Index shows that the economy spent 68 months below its trend and only nine months above it. It was a 34.3% overall economic decline during those years. And then you run into the Panic of 1857. That was precipitated by the failure of Ohio Life and Insurance Trust Company. Think back to uh, 2008, AIG, you know, the big insurance firm, etc., etc. And that burst speculation by Europeans in United States railroads and a huge loss of confidence in American bank. 6,000 businesses failed in the first year of this panic. 6,000. Now, this was a much smaller country then. That is an enormous amount of business failures. There was a short recession going into the Civil War, 1860-1861, but of course the Civil War kind of got us out of that. Then there was the recession of 1865-1867 as we kind of stepped back from the war footing and into the Reconstruction era. And then we get into the Panic of 1873 and the Long Depression. In this one, economic problems in Europe, gee, does that sound familiar? Prompted the failure of J. Cook and Company, the largest bank in the United States. Do you remember Lehman Brothers a few years ago, folks? And Bear Stearns? Which burst the post-Civil War speculative bubble. There was an act called the Coin Act of 1873, which contributed, oh, imagine that, by immediately depressing the price of silver, which 
which hurt North American mining interests. And in 1879, the United States finally returned to the gold standard with the Specie Payment Resumption Act. Oh, we made a mistake uh, 10, 20 years ago. We're so sorry to have caused you all the distress. We'll go back to it now. Many economic historians, by the way, considered this long depression to run really from 1873 all the way to 1896, almost 23 years. Then there was the Depression of 1882-1885, kind of like the Long Depression that preceded or encompassed this one. This was a price depression, not really a production depression. From 1879 to 1882, there had been this boom in railroad construction, right? And then it came to an end because the railroads were built. And that resulted in a huge decline in both railroad construction and all the related industries across the United States, particularly iron and steel. Then do you remember what happened in 1898? Oh, the Spanish-American War. And then the Panic of 1893 set in, all part of this long depressionary period. The failure of the United States Reading Railroad and the withdrawal of European investment led to a stock market collapse and a banking collapse. Now, remember the runs on the banks over the last few months and how they cratered? It was precipitated in part by a run on the gold supply. The Treasury actually had to issue bonds to purchase enough gold to cover people that were clamoring to be paid in metals rather than paper. And in this period, there was a period called the Panic of 1896 when deflation was, you know, prices were headed rock bottom at a rapid rate. And then the Panic of 1907, this was kind of a big one. It started with a run on the Knickerbocker Trust Company. Oh, gee, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And that began October 22nd, 1907, and that kind of set events in motion that would lead to a severe monetary contraction. Wait till we get to the rest of the story here, folks. And the fallout from that panic led Congress to create, oh, imagine this, the Federal Reserve System. Listen to my history of the Federal Reserve and banking. And then a larger recession, 1913 to 1914. Production and real income declined precipitously during this period, and they weren't offset until the beginnings of, guess what, World War One. You see a theme evolving here? By the way, it was in 1913, right in the middle of this mess, that the Federal Reserve Act was signed and the Federal Reserve System was created. In fact, it got so bad at one point that U.S. Treasury Secretary William Gibbs McAdoo closed the New York Stock Exchange for a while beginning July 31st of 1914. And then after World War I, you know, winding down from war again, get the stimulus going away. We had another recession and a pretty severe one. It resulted in hyperinflation in Europe, which basically wrecked production in North America because Europeans couldn't afford North American goods. And of course, you had all the troops returning from war, which created a huge spike in unemployment. And then you had what's called the Depression of 20 and 21, 1920 and 21. The year 1920-20, most economic historians regard, and this is a pretty incredible fact, as the most deflationary year in American history. Production, however, did not fall as much as you might have anticipated. But GNP declined as much as 7%. Wholesale prices went down 36.8%. And then, of course, you had the recovery, which was strong. 1923-1924, kind of a short-lived recession. In fact, this was the middle of the roaring 20s. You know, it was a go-go period, loose money, low interest rates, anything went, speculative frenzies and bubbles, kind of like, oh, let's see. Oh, that's right, 2011 to 2022. Hmm. 1926 to 1927. This 
was a recession, but it was an unusual recession. It was caused really by a single event. Henry Ford closed production of his factories for six months, and that was a huge deal in the United States at that time, to switch from production of the Model T Ford to the Model A Ford. What are they talking about going on right now? Oh, that's right, AI. Hmm. And that's going to create all sorts of what? Different types of production and production controls. Think about that. And then, of course, we get into the Great Depression. August of 1929. A banking panic. A collapse in the money supply. That's called M2. Think about that when we get to the rest of the story. And it was exacerbated by everybody kind of clamoring for gold because everything was on the gold standard there. Then they they compounded the problem with new tariffs and other factors. And the depression get deeper and deeper and deeper. And we really wouldn't get out of it until... Oh, here we go, another war. It's called World War II. And then 1937 to 1938, right, going into World War II, the tight fiscal policy that the Fed had put in resulting in, well, it was based on their attempt to kind of balance the budget after all the New Deal, you know, the social stuff of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, hmm, Inflation Reduction Act and COVID Relief Act. Did any of this drawing any parallels in your mind? And the declining profits of businesses that resulted from all this. And then after World War II wound down, we had the recession of 1945, which of course was caused by the decline in government spending at the end of World War II. And it was an enormous drop in gross domestic product, 12.7%. And then the recession of 1958. Remember, going back to my previous historical stories, the Federal Reserve asserted its independence from the Treasury in 1951. And the Federal Reserve began to control, rather than the Treasury controlling it, monetary policy. And they were tightening the screws because they didn't want inflations or bubbles forming from the latent effects of all the World War II spending. And then we had a short recession, 1960 and 61, right before the election of John Kennedy. This was caused by the Federal Reserve raising interest rates beginning in 1959. And by the way, when the economy emerged from this, it began its second strongest and second longest period of growth in the entire history that has been kept on these recessionary and recovery timeframes. Then we had a recession in 69 and 70. Inflation was rising, probably because of all the increased deficits. Well, gee, that sounds familiar. And then the feds clamped down because they wanted to kind of tighten up on the budget deficits of the Vietnam War. And they raised interest rates. 73 to 75, we had this 1973 oil crisis, a quadrupling of oil prices due to OPEC. Another little thing that's going on right now, as we'll talk about in the rest of the story in Rat-a-tat-tat. And there was the big crash of the stock market in 73 and 74, which led the United States into a stagflation recession. That's when you have negative growth and inflation. Then you have the 1980 recession. This recession began as the Federal Reserve. This is Paul Volcker's time period. Remember the guy who raised interest rates at 20.5% at the Fed, where he raised interest rates dramatically to fight the inflation of the 1970s. By the way, this is the only what they call W-shaped recession in American history, or a double-dip recession. And then in July of 1981, the Iranian Revolution, (laughs) precipitated by United States meddling. But that's yet another tale. And again, the price of oil skyrocketed, and that caused the 1979 energy crisis. And again, tight monetary controls by the Fed in the United States to try and control inflation, which led 
to another recession, the early 1990s recession. As inflation began to increase after the 80s, the Fed responded by raising interest rates from 1986 to 1989, not like our current Fed, who's raised them literally in a period of 12 months. And then we were hit with the double whammy of the 1990 oil price shock. You take the debt accumulation of the 1980s, which was steep by relative standards, not by today's standards, growing consumer pessimism and a weakened economy plus another surge in oil prices caused this recession. Then you had the early 2000s recession, you know, the dot-com bust. The 1990s, by the way, were the longest period of economic growth in American history up to that point. But the collapse of the highly speculative dot-com bubble, a fall in business spending and investments, and the September 11th attacks, you know, Osama bin Laden, brought that whole decade of growth to an end. This recession, however, was nonetheless brief and shallow. And then you have the Great Recession, right? The financial boondoggle of 2007 through 2009, which was created by the subprime mortgage crisis. In other words, the creation of funny money and the lending it in stupid transactions, what they call malinvestment, to people who couldn't pay it back. And that was the United States housing bubble. It created a global financial crisis. Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, AIG, the big insurance company. I mean, they all went down. They had to be rescued by the government, which created, oh, more spending, more printing, an increase in the money supply, and guess what? An increase in inflation. And finally, we have the COVID-19 recession. I think you all know what I think of the COVID conjure. But more than 24 million people lost jobs in the United States in just three weeks in April of 2020. You know that two weeks to slow the spread. This recession was one of the steepest, but it was also one of the shortest on record. Partly it was offset by online purchases and then zero interest rates and then trillions of dollars of money printing and the feds propping up the stock market, the banks, and you know who? The American public who took the funny money, you know, just like the 1920s and the previous time periods and went out and wasted it on malinvestments, you know, shiny objects, shiny toys that don't mean anything and don't add to production or wealth. Which brings us to the rest of the story, which is where we are today, what they're telling you, and what really is. I'll let you decide what the future trajectory is going to be. This government right now is telling you everything is fine. The banking industry is fine. Inflation is under control and coming down. Employment is surging. It's the best economy in, in the world in years. No problem on the debt. And I can go on. You know the BS they've been flinging at your skillet. The PSYOPs. Last week, I just gave you a taste of what I'm going to present right now. The rest of the story. Home ownership costs skyrocketing above rents. Home prices down 4.1% overall. First drop overall across the United States since April 2012. Some markets down 30-40%. Annual mortgage costs rising to 45% of household income. Well, there's more. There's, unfortunately, much more. Let me give you an example of how these numbers are being twisted and then hidden from you. In April, they told you there were 253,000 new non-farm jobs. But then that was quietly revised, right? 3.4% unemployment, really. The downward adjustments for March and February, gee, the mainstream media didn't bring this up, actually came to a loss of 145,000 jobs in April. Not a gain. Most recently, May, right? The month just passed. We were told by the government 
learned that there were 375,000, give or take, new jobs. But what they didn't tell you is that that 375,000 was based on Bureau of Labor Statistics seasonal assumptions, not actual payrolls. And that accounted for 231,000 of the supposed 375,000 new jobs. Now, anybody who knows that in May, unemployment, even by the government standards, went from 3.4 to 3.7, is probably scratching their head at this uh, contrary anomaly shall we say. And this is before you see the revisions for April and May. I doubt that they will be upwards. Central bank balance sheets, in other words, the money they've printed was 8% of GDP in the year 2000. 8%. Now, across the planet, and particularly in the United States, it is 47% of GDP. But that is not a problem, folks. There was an $8.2 trillion increase in M2, right? That's money supply. That's a combination of all the dollars and coins in circulation and bank credit. And now what the Fed is doing, although they're not telling you this, is they are tightening money supply. M2, for the first time in decades, is going down. There's less cash circulating. And that's even with the Fed, after telling you this, the financial system was sound, and don't worry about it, put together a four to $600 billion rescue package for banks where they could borrow if they were illiquid as long as they paid it back in a year, secured it with their treasury notes at par, and paid 4.7% interest. And of course, $5 trillion, $5 trillion has been spent on green energy. Yeah. Okay. Do you know what that $5 trillion has bought us over the last decade? At the beginning of this $5 trillion, <laughs> and now they're saying it's going to be $50 trillion, boondoggle. Fossil fuels was 82% of all energy supply and consumption on the planet Earth. Our $5 trillion expenditure has gotten it down to, hold on to your seat, 81%. The National Federation of Independent Businesses, you know, this is all the small business folks in the United States, they're, they're really the engine of the economy. Their outlook for future business has been falling precipitously since 2018 and 2019. That almost always foreshadows a recession. The government's been telling you, look at the stock market, look at the stock market going up. Here's what they don't tell you. There's no breath in this increase in the stock market. That means the number of shares that are actually increasing, the number of companies whose shares are going up in value, is a tiny segment of the stock market. Let me give you an example. The S&P 500, there's 10 stocks, 10 stocks carrying the market. They have generated more, should we say, increase in the index than the other 426 plus or minus stocks combined. The NASDAQ is about the same. Six stocks have been carrying the NASDAQ index, and those six stocks are more than double the other several hundred stocks in the NASDAQ, which is the tech sector combined. The IIF, you know, the big international debt agency, if you will, they just came out with a report. Gee, can't find it on media anywhere. Global debt was $305 trillion. Did you hear what I just said? $305 trillion. This is straight debt now. This is not unfunded liabilities. Like, you know, the United States has a $30, I guess, $4 trillion debt now with the increase in the debt ceiling. But it's unfunded liabilities, Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security, pensions, is another 
they estimate 100 to 125 trillion. Some estimate it's 200 trillion. All the countries in the world, particularly the western part of the world, are in the same predicament. And you think that the Fed has just raised rates basically from zero or a quarter to five and a quarter? You know, a five and a quarter percent, give or take, increase? Not really. The real truth is rates have gone up more than eight percent in one year. Never happened before. Not even close. Not even in the days of Volcker. And how do I get to that eight percent? Because you have to talk about real rates. So when inflation was two or three percent back when the Fed rate was zero percent, the Fed rate is really in real life, in real dollars, negative three percent was the real interest rate. Now the real interest rate for the first time in almost 20 years is showing a positive return. To get there, you have to go up over the current inflation rate, which is, I'm rounding numbers, five percent. That's an eight percent increase in real interest rates. Gee, I wonder why the there's problems out there in the economy and the banking system. And in terms of inflation, <laughs> inflation actually went up by the government statistics last month. And I think you'll see it up again this month. But we've talked about shadow statistics on this program many times. Check it out, shadowstatistics.com. The real rate of inflation is somewhere around 14 plus percent. And this is based on, think back to our historical story. What happened in almost every major recession that I told you about, right? Speculation fueled by the printing of money, easy money, and bad policy, and malinvestment. In other words, not putting it into something that will produce something. And then a tightening by the Fed and a decrease in the money supply. I mean, this goes back 200 plus years. The other thing they're not telling you about employment is that of the 3.3 million jobs that President Cadaver and his economic witch brew cabal are crowing about, most of them are part-time jobs. I brought you that story nine months ago. I pointed out to you that most of these jobs are being taken by people who already have jobs. They now need two jobs to make ends meet. But there's another, you know, uh, the rest of the story within the rest of the story. The majority of those 3.3 million jobs are foreign workers. Uh, let's see, what's happening there on the southern border? Oh, yeah. And coming up, we have student debt. Now, fortunately, it looks like it's not going to be canceled, which would be $1.3 of money printing, really. But that student debt, that forgiveness, that deferment ends in June. And you got to start paying again on your debt on August 30th. The average is $393 a month. It affects 45 million people in the United States. That's $393 a month times $45 million that ain't going to be buying anything. It's going to be going into debt repayment. And the other thing that's coming up during this whole debt ceiling debacle, the Treasury, it's called the TGA, the Treasury General Account, was basically writing the checks. You know, good old Janet Yellen. Oh, well, we're in good hands there. Well, now, by law, they have to replenish that Treasury General Account. About $650 million which is also going to be sucked out of the capital and the cash oxygen in the economic room. And that begins almost immediately. And in terms of inflation, well, we just went over the history. Every time there was loose money, printing money, making up money, there was inflation. From 2020, M2, right, the money supply, was $15.3 trillion. In January of 2022, M2 was $21.1 trillion. That's a 42% increase, more than $6.5 trillion, give or take dollars. And everybody got high on the dollar cocaine 
right? Lots of dollars floating around, zero interest rates, and all of a sudden the spigot has been abruptly, suspiciously abruptly, I might add, cut off. Think about back to our historical story and how the government used economic crises to expand its power. In fact, some people jumped up and down for the government to expand its power and save them. And how they used economic crises to get off the gold standard, go back on the gold standard, depress the price of silver, replace coinage with paper. And now, of course, we hear rumors about the GBDC, the digital currency. Hmm, do they have to set something up to get that in motion? I wonder. I give you another page of statistics like this. But the bottom line is you're not being told the truth. What I just told you, give or take a tenth of a percent, give or take a hundred billion dollars or so, who cares with 34 trillion, is the absolute truth. You know, this is not 1984, George Orwell's 1984. War is not peace. Two plus two is not five. I want you to take all the information I gave you today, the historical and the current, the rest of the story. I want you to think about it. Next week, we're going to go over the five stages in a cycle by a terrific investor and manager, money manager, by the name of Pento. And I think you will, with this show and the next and the others that we've done that you've listened to, I think you'll be able to make a very, very, very solid decision about where we are and where we're headed, which will lead you to the next important decision, what you're going to do about it. Which brings us to rat-a-tat-tat. And boy, it's funny how some of these stories tie into what we just shared together. And with apologies, I'm not going to cover any Silk Road information today. I will get that in the show next week, along with the graphs, the charts, the five phases of economic cycles, so that you can kind of see where things are at. Because China has its problems too, folks, although it's being much more clever about handling them than we are. But on rat-a-tat-tat right in keeping with our historical story, etc. today. The owners of the two largest hotels, or should we say two of the largest, the largest and the fourth largest hotels in San Francisco, are going to give them back to the lenders. $725 million in loans. Poof. Gone. And as you know, San Francisco is taking it on the chin, as is New York, as is Chicago, as is Baltimore. All these big blue cities are going down the tubes. For many of the same macro reasons we kind of discussed on a national level in this show. The Hilton San Francisco Union Square and the Park 55 Hotel are going back to the lenders. The owners are no longer going to make the debt service and other payments or maintenance on those hotels. San Francisco has record high office vacancy. Obviously, the street conditions are, to put it mildly, unsafe. It has a lower return to office than peer cities throughout the country. The citywide convention calendar through 2027 is way down, which is going to impact just about every business in the city. And as you probably know from other shows or perhaps elsewhere, a raft of stores are leaving the city because they say of crime. And I'm sure that's a that's a big reason. You know, when you can steal $950 worth of stuff and it's not a crime, that's a problem for retailers. But Walmart, Old Navy, Nordstrom, Whole Foods, T-Mobile, just to name a few, are leaving San Francisco. And the city has only recovered 31% of its downtown activity since the pandemic. That's abysmal. And since the Western countries, you know, the United States cabal, since they can't seem to make any decisions that are correct, or perhaps they are really adept at making decisions which are purposely incorrect, you might be interested to know, and this is certainly good economic news, isn't it? You know, for food prices and all sorts of other things. The Irish government is reportedly considering a plan to cull, that is kill, 200,000 of their cow herds over the next three years. Yeah, I'm not making that up. 
This is to combat climate change, folks. You know, because the Department of Agriculture there in Ireland has determined that 38% of these nasty emissions that are ruining the planet are coming from cows in Ireland. Along the lines of our economic discussion today, OPEC and their partners, which is known as OPEC Plus, that's, I believe, 23 countries, they agreed, and their meeting was just over on June 4th in Vienna, they agreed to extend their voluntary supply cuts until the end of 2024. This is, you know, close to 2 million barrels of oil a day. But on top of that, the Saudi Arabian Ministry of Energy announced that beginning in July, the country's going to implement a further cut in its crude production, another million barrels. By the way, those 23 oil-producing countries account for about 60% of global oil production in 2022. Of course, American production is way down. What's really interesting is that you would have thought oil would have just spiked on that, and it did. It spiked up to about $80 a barrel, and then it fell back to $70 a barrel. And this is because, and we're going to talk about it more next week in our next installment of the Silk Road, in our next installment of the amazing story of China's Belt and Road Initiative, Chinese manufacturing numbers are way down. And that's because Western countries are decoupling, right? The the world is kind of splitting into bipolar power centers. And of course, China's manufacturing goes mostly to Western countries, particularly the United States. Some more economic rat-a-tat-tat for you to go with today's show. So Costco's chief financial officer, his name is Jalanti. He, he believes that the country is bumping up against a recession and that the signs are coming from what customers are purchasing. And he's been through several cycles, so this guy is not a slouch. He says that he's seen more canned meat and fish leaving the shelves, which means that shoppers are buying items that cost less and can be put in a pantry for an extended period of time. You know, inflation, folks, causes people to buy things in advance because they anticipate the prices going up, particularly things that they know they're going to use. And to go along with this, the Federal Reserve just released a report. 64% of Americans are now buying cheaper versions of products. And another 66% say they're using less of specific products or eliminating them entirely. This kind of ties in to what all the big retailers are reporting, which is their off-brand names, which are less expensive. Their sales volume has dramatically increased over the last several months. By the way, along those oil storylines, and this ties in with the Ukraine war and all the economic and fiscal impact that has had, unnecessarily, I might add. Although Russia is part of that 23 group, 23 country group, OPEC plus, and they said they would cut 500,000 barrels a day. It doesn't seem that they're doing that. There's some friction between Saudi Arabia and Russia. But the more important thing is that Russia is now exporting 8.3 million barrels per day. In other words, Russia's getting rich off U.S. sanctions. And they have all the money in the world to continue the Ukraine war and whatever other conflict they want to continue just about forever. Great job, President Kadaver and crew. And then also Ukraine. So there's been this major dam destroyed. You probably heard about it. And of course, the American press, which you can't trust as far as you can throw them, and the American government, which is like the American press, say Russia did it. Russia did it. And this is a big river. And this dam is huge. The Kakhovka Dam. And it's now flooding this massive region, both kind of Russian and Ukrainian. So there's hundreds of thousands of people, both kind of Russian-leaning and Ukrainian-leaning, that are threatened. It's threatening a nuclear power plant, which happens to be Europe's largest. It also makes impossible Russian counterattacks and defenses from what supposedly is this magic Ukraine offensive. I don't know how you 
mount an offensive when, you know, 60% of your soldiers have been killed and you're trying to run supply lines with like nine different tanks. I mean, it's a nightmare to supply an army with a single line of equipment, never mind nine different lines, which requires exponential logistics problems in terms of supply, repairs, and maintenance. What's really curious, though, is that the breach of this dam certainly impacts the Russian military adversely more than the Ukrainian military. And the water stored behind this dam generated both hydropower and water supply to Crimea, which, of course, is a stated target of Ukraine. It must all be coincidence, don't you think? After all, we didn't blow up the Nord Stream pipeline. Now did we? Right. And then, of course, the corruption continues unabated. So the FBI says that they finally turned over a document or whatever on the Biden $5 million bribery scandal that has blown up. And Congress doesn't think they've turned it all over. Christopher Wray, the FBI head mucky muck, who, you know, I warned you about him when he was first appointed, folks, unfortunately by Trump. He will probably still face contempt charges. But on the other hand, even if he's... Held in contempt of Congress, I mean, so what? What What are the ramifications? You know, if there's no accountability, these people are going to keep doing the same things. Chuck Grassley, by the way, who's on the Senate committee that's kind of working with the House on investigating all this, he made a really interesting comment. Quote, we aren't interested in whether or not the accusations against then-Vice President Biden are accurate, unquote. What we're interested in is what the FBI knew, when they knew it, and why they haven't turned over the information, unquote. And you know what? He's right. Biden's bribery will not go away. But when you have the quote-unquote premier law enforcement agency in the United States unequally applying laws and withholding critical evidence or manufacturing evidence, as we've seen on a number of occasions here, that goes to the heart of the republic. By the way, there was a poll as all this was kind of manifesting itself, the Durham report, which heavily criticized the FBI, what came out in the Twitter. I mean, it's been not a really good year for the FBI, all of their own making, unfortunately, or should I say all of their own higher echelons making. But more than half the nation, 63%, want the FBI to face some form of punishment for weaponizing its power against the American people for political reasons and for election interference. And by the way, that poll was from Issues and Insights and TIPP, both good firms. And people were questioned on misleading Congress, covering up corruption, manufacturing scandals, raiding the home of a former president, targeting innocent people based on their moral and political beliefs, interference in elections. And the poll is really quite remarkable. If I were the FBI, I would be kind of worried. On the other hand, perhaps they're comfortable in that they are surrounded by corruption in all the agencies and in the administration. And, you know, who cares? 1,358 respondents... By the way, this poll was May 31 to June 2nd. 75% of Republicans, 59% of Democrats, and 57% of independents seem to get the problem with the FBI. Pretty interesting. You know, when you get the public aware, right, this goes back to information, psyops, omission of information, hiding of information, creation of information. But when you sift through that and you get to the truth and you get the public on board, remember what I told you at the beginning of the show? That one guy standing there, I'm just one American, what can I do? And then the next meme, huge crowd, there's a hundred million of us saying the same thing to ourselves. When you get everybody together, kind of like the ranch store, you can achieve momentous things. And of course, the cadaver administration is obviously hell-bent on undermining our military, i.e. the woke policies, the morons that are running the military, Secretary of Dents, you know, Austin, he's a joke. But now... 
The White House has proposed a rule which just surfaced. It was, they proposed in November that would require all major contractors for the Department of Defense, NASA, and the Government Services Agency, the GSA, to submit their climate-related goals to a consortium of activist organizations, which is called the, yeah, you'll love this, the Science-Based Targets Initiative, or SBTI. Okay? You know, the left is just great at these synonyms. And if the SBTI subjectively rejects the contractor's plan, the company would no longer be eligible to compete for government contracts. By the way, the groups behind the SBTI are part of what's called the Global Common Alliance, which is a climate activist network. And their stated goals on their website, go check them out, is to limit economic development, set up international watchdogs, watch climate pledges of governments and private companies, to limit consumption, to redistribute resources between rich and poor people, and to mitigate perceived changes to the climate. Mm-hmm. You got it. There's a guy by the name of Dan Kish, Senior Fellow, Institute of Energy Research. I think he kind of nailed it. Let me give you his quote. Quote, these seem to be offshoots of the interests of the World Economic Forum. People who, who consider themselves smarter and better and wealthier and more powerful than the rest of the subjects of the world, and they seek to impose their will. Unquote. In Vermont, there's a school district that is uh, paying people that they wronged, a teacher and her daughter, $125,000 for, shall we say, going beyond the red line. The teacher's name is Alan. That's the last name. And Alan happens to be a coach. And the district forced him to allow a male, who claimed to be transgender, to use the girls' locker room at the school. And this was at Randolph Union Middle School in Vermont, Bernie Sanders' home state. And Travis Allen, the coach, complained to the district that the boy was causing the girls on his team that he was coaching to feel uncomfortable. Their reaction was to suspend him. <laughs> Specifically, they blamed his misgendering the boy for being in the girls' locker rooms. And when his daughter, Blake, spoke out for him, well, they banned her from using the school locker room facilities for daring to speak out. Well, good for the Allens. They sued the district. The district has to completely reinstate the whole nine yards and write them a check for 125000 The lesson in this, folks, is don't take this crap. Stand up. Get yourself an attorney, get together with other parents, whatever you have to do, and sue these people. And the same with any of you who have been injured by the fraudulent jabs, who were given the jabs without informed consent, which is federal law. And I can go on down the list. You cannot allow these things to stand. We're out of time. Look at the mirror. Repeat with conviction. I will muster. I will stand. I will not comply. I will never give in. I will never stop fighting. I will join with those in these United States and across the globe who love freedom as I do, and we will win. Read Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side Radio. Keep the wind at your back. We'll talk at you next week. Please remember, if you've missed any shows, just click on Show Archive and you'll find all of his shows. We look forward to seeing you here again next week for another episode of Reed Lance Rosenthal on the right side.